long before we started the campus in Waverly or in Grundy County, there was the Apostle Paul. He was the original church starter. He started so many churches in the early days, and much of what we call the New Testament is made up of letters that Paul wrote to these churches that he started and that he cared for. Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of those letters, and it's actually Paul's most joy-filled letter. It's overflowing with encouragement and tenderness and hope, while at the same time offering this vibrant encouragement to the Philippians and, and to all Christians to live a life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And our hope during this series that we've called Worthy of the Gospel is that as we walk through this powerful letter together that we can learn about how Jesus can give us power to walk through any circumstance that life might throw at us with peace, contentment, humility, and joy. Last week, Julie was here, and she spoke from the second chapter, and we were challenged not to be grumblers or complainers, and instead to refocus our minds on the truth and to find our hope in Jesus. So today we're going to look at the third chapter. Paul wants his readers to experience joy and to find their worth in Jesus. Lasting worth and joy is not found in the circumstances of our lives, but it flows out of a relationship with Jesus. It's found in, in knowing and relying on Jesus so that it stays consistent regardless of whatever it is that we're going through. I want to start right with verse 1. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. This is what Paul says to the church. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I love this. And not just because it's a, it's a great summary of his theme to find our joy in the Lord, but also because of the way he talks to his readers here. He calls them, my dear brothers and sisters. And it's not just him being polite, like writing a nice thank you card to grandma after you get a birthday gift. But I think he's actually being sentimental. Because his church is full of people that he loves. And Paul wants them to take a next step in experiencing true worth and joy in their lives. Specifically, he's going to teach them, he's going to teach us. And this is our main point this morning. That we can only experience true worth by knowing and relying on God. Now, I hope this sounds good so far. It, it seems pretty positive, you know, pretty fun. We're going to talk about joy, about loving each other, about being brothers and sisters. That seems great, doesn't it? That's verse 1. Now, verse 2 there's a pretty dramatic change here. Paul actually gets mad. Here's what he says. Watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil. Those mutilators. And Paul's angry here. He's even calling people names. Dogs, mutilators. Why the change? Why so mad, Paul? And there's a reason. 
But I want to warn you, first, that it's going to seem a little strange because our cultural context is so different from that of Paul's day. So I want you to stick with me here. Here's the whole verse. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. These people were saying that if you really wanted to follow Jesus, you first had to be circumcised. Now, I know some of you this morning may be visitors. And it might be your first time in church. Maybe you accepted an invitation from a friend and you thought, sure, I'll go to church. But the last thing that you thought you would hear would be a teacher talking about whether or not you should be circumcised. So, let me just back up a few steps here and I want to talk about the historical context. This meant something very important to the people who received this letter from Paul. And we need to remember that Paul was one of the first Christian missionaries 2,000 years ago. This letter was sent to a brand new church in a city called Philippi. This was one of the very first churches in all of history. And they didn't know how to do church. They were just kind of figuring it out as they went. Almost all of the people who made up that church were from a Jewish background. And part, and, and part of the Jewish custom was that when a baby boy was eight days old, they went through a religious ceremony in which every child was circumcised. That physically marked the child as a member of the Jewish community and it symbolically represented their belief that the Jewish people were set apart to be God's special people. Now this is way different from the way that we think of circumcision today. And for most of us, it's simply a medical procedure that parents can choose for their baby boys. Within 48 hours of his birth, he signs some papers, the nurse comes in, whisks the little guy away. Fifteen minutes later, he's back all bundled up. Nothing's changed except for some well-placed bandages and an understandably upset little boy who's wondering if he's ever going to be able to trust his parents again. But that's not what Paul's angry about. What he had a problem with was people telling others that to follow Jesus, you needed to be circumcised. Following Jesus meant that you had to follow the religious rules. Paul's angry because these people are putting the hope of their salvation, their spiritual value and worth on the idea that you needed to follow a human ritual. They're relying on their own human effort. And that's why Paul is upset. It's not just circumcision. Paul would be upset if we would point at any human activity as a reason why God would love us. In our context, we might take pride in, in how much of the Bible we've read or how often we pray. Now, those are good things. But Paul would want us to know that that's not how it works. You cannot, by human effort, earn your salvation. Your worth is not defined by what you do. In the rest of this chapter, Paul gives us two steps that he wants us to take to help us understand how we can know and rely on God. And the first one's pretty easy to understand. Step one is that we need to stop relying on human effort. 
That means we need to disconnect the things that we do with our closeness with God. So the first step is to stop. I began working in the church as a youth pastor in the late 80s. Now every era has its own unique personality and challenges. But the late 80s, those were truly troubled times. And the biggest challenge that we faced was that everyone dressed horribly. (laughs) Everyone looked ridiculous. And I'm glad we're talking about this this morning because I read recently that 80s fashions are beginning to make a comeback. Now, I need to use this powerful platform here to say something this morning. Friends, this cannot happen. I want to pick one specific fashion from the late 80s, the early 90s that I think was representative of everything that was wrong with that era, it was tight-rolling your jeans. I remember many students whose self-worth was crushed because they didn't know how to tight-roll their jeans properly. If it was too high, if it was too low, if it was too loose, you were not worthy. And this mentality crept its way into the church. It leaked into Christian youth groups. Christian fashion statements started popping up. And spiritual status and value and worth was equated with whether or not students were keeping up with the Christian fashion trends. And one trend in particular. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. Do you remember what it was? WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? He'd wear that bracelet. It was literally assumed that students that were wearing a WWJD bracelet were closer to God. People were building their relationship with God based on a human fashion accessory on human effort. And thank goodness those days are behind us. Or are they? It might not be fashion statements anymore, but I think that many of us still continue to build up human accomplishments that will prove to God our worth and to earn our eternal salvation. So I want you to look at this diagram with me. This line across the top stands for our salvation. And if we get above that line, you've earned it. You get to go to heaven. Now, I think many of us spend our lives building up accomplishments that we think will get us closer and closer to that line. If we go back to chapter 3, Paul in verse, verses 5 and 6 says, I've got my own list of accomplishments. Now, I understand that these are ancient Jewish religious accomplishments, but again, they meant something to his readers. Paul says things like, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. He says that when it comes to following Jewish law, I've done so without fault. Now, our list would look different than that, of course. For us, I think the number one thing that we would stack up would be the belief that I am a good moral person. Or maybe it would be that my family's happy. I'm doing a pretty good job as a parent or a husband or a wife. 
Or maybe it's my job, or my career, or my education. We even pepper this list with religious things. I go to church every week. Now don't get me wrong, I'm really glad you're here. But it's also things like, I pray before every meal, even when it's at McDonald's and it's weird. Are any of those things bad? No. Doing good things, especially godly things, is wonderful. Things like coming to church, things like being part of a small group so that you are growing in your faith with others. Things like serving others, studying the Bible. We believe that those things are fundamental tools to growing your relationship with Jesus. But are those things the reason why God loves you? No. By doing any of those things, will God think you are so wonderful that He must let you into heaven? No. In fact, there are, right. In fact, there are two deadly problems in living this kind of life. First of all, as we build up these human achievements trying to get closer to God, we are then required to find our worth and our joy in them. In our job, our family, our morality, our religious activity. But what if one of them were to falter or fail? Your job doesn't go the way you want. Cracks start showing up in your moral living. Suddenly that neat, tidy stack of accomplishments comes crashing down. And so does your worth and joy. It's gone. That's the first danger. But the second one is even worse. As we build up these human accomplishments, we will never reach that line. God is so good. He's so perfect, so loving, that anything we do, even our best, doesn't measure up. In reality, this line would be infinitely high up. The standard that God set is so incredible that if we draw, if we draw it like this, It's still misleading. You will never be good enough, moral enough, religious enough to earn your salvation. That's not how it works. We need to stop relying on human effort. So here's what Paul says after he lists his human accomplishments. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because... Of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. Now he's using words like like worthless and garbage, not because all the things in his stack are terrible, because but because they weren't doing him any good to achieve salvation. We need to stop relying on human effort. So if we're supposed to stop doing that, then what are we supposed to start doing? Step two is that we are to start relying solely on Jesus for our worth and for our salvation. So we're going to look at this diagram again with one big change. We're going to flip it upside down. In this perspective, we begin with this line of salvation. And it's entirely based on God's grace and on His love. You don't need to earn it. 
You don't need to do something to get above it. God just loves you. And we don't deserve it. Now once we accept that, once we accept His forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong and accept His grace and love, and that's called knowing Christ, by the way, and that's the phrase that Paul uses, knowing Christ. Once you know Christ and decide to follow Him, then you can start to build your life on that solid foundation. You can have an incredible career. You can be a great family member in the family you live in. You can be a good moral person. And here's the good news. Even if one of those were to fail or to fall down, you commit some sin, just like all the rest of us do, that doesn't mean the whole deal is over. You have this foundation of God's love that will hold you up. And you can begin again. You can find your worth in the solid foundation of God's love. So before I finish, I want to tackle one last big question. How do we live like this? Some of you here today are not followers of Jesus. And I'm glad you're here. Now let me say this to you. This may be the day that you choose to follow Him. And understand that I'm not talking about changing your actions today. What I'm talking about is you flipping your perspective and your foundation. I don't want you to live one more day relying on your own efforts that will result at best in temporary happiness. God wants you to know that He loves you. And He wants to start this eternal relationship with you. And I also know that many of you have already made a choice to follow Jesus. And the good news is that this this passage is for you too. Paul's writing to a church full of people who have already made this choice. People who have taken that first step. But listen to me. It doesn't stop there. It's about taking further steps, making ongoing choices that can only happen because you're taking that foundation of God's love seriously. That's where you will find true worth and joy, making ongoing choices that will, that will force you to rely on God. So that's the specific challenge that I have for you today. Take a next step that will force you to rely on God. And don't just take any step. I think we need to to be like Jesus. And we must live in a way that forces us to rely on God. And that involves moving out of our comfort zone and taking some risks. Relational risks. Who we share our lives with. Financial risks. How we spend our money. Risks about how we use our time. Career. Educational risks. Emotional risks. In in, uh, confronting some of the fears and some of the pains in our lives, and even spiritual risks. This is not about being comfortable. That's not our goal. Followers of Jesus are risk takers. They rely on Jesus. When we stand on the solid foundation of God's love, then 
the opportunities to experience and express that love in and through our lives are endless. Here's what Paul says. I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. So as I close, I want to challenge you to consider, seriously consider, what next step you might take. To help you, I've listed the four areas that we have identified as key factors in our spiritual growth. Each of these play an important part, an important role in in building a life on the foundation of God's love. Invest in others. Where might you invest to meet the needs of other people? Engage the Bible. How can you take a next step in learning more about God in His Word? Worship God. Make a commitment to attend church regularly, even weekly, and belong in community. What relational step could you take to better experience community by connecting with other Christians? What next steps can you take that will force you to rely on Jesus. Stop relying on your own human effort. Start relying solely on Jesus. We can only experience true worth by knowing and relying on Him. That's it. Let's pray. God, there have been so many times in my lives where I've gotten, this, I've gotten this whole thing mixed up. And I keep falling into that bad old pattern of thinking it's about me. It's about what I do, what I can do. But it always leads, leads to that same disappointing place. Of finding out through that, through that mistake, that myth, that wrong notion that it leads nowhere. It, it only leads in the end to disappointment and pain. Disappointment in myself and others and even disappointment in you, God, because I've got it all backwards. So, God, first, thank you for the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians and his words and challenge that, that speak through these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to us today with that same message. That we don't need to rely on our own efforts. And instead, we can place our trust in you. Solely in you. And we can even live a risky, exciting life. Where we step out in faith. And discover more and more about what it means to live here and now for you building a life on your love and grace. God, I pray for all of us in this room this morning, wherever we are, whoever we are, that we will be challenged to consider what next step that we can take. And God, I pray this in the name of your amazing Son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.